December 2017. Nadia Atwi's vehicle is discovered wedged into some bushes at a park near her home. Just want to tell her that I love her. Come back today. I would forget about what happened. But Nadia is never seen again. If I go back, I would react differently, but I didn't know. The next call, the case of Nadia Atwi, available now on the CBC Listen app and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Avel Ortega is a Venezuelan migrant living in Ciudad Juarez. He's been struggling to make ends meet, and last week, he and his family were begging for money on the streets when they were approached by the police. Avel was with his two sons, a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and his wife. They were a group because they were sharing with other families, so some of them just ran. Alicia Fernandez is a freelance journalist who's been following Avel's story. He's one of thousands of people who's stranded in the border town, waiting for a chance to make an asylum claim in the U.S. Many of them, like Avel, have resorted to panhandling in recent months. It's become so common that locals have been complaining and the city's been cracking down. They were all working uh, on the streets, like asking for money when they were detained. They were taken to this building. Uh, Abel were caught with his 21-year-old brother, Orlando. Because Avel was with his family, the officials at the detention facility let him go, and they gave him notice to leave the city within 30 days. His brother, Orlando, wasn't so lucky. That night, according to the Mexican government, a migrant set fire to some mattresses as a way to protest after learning he was going to be deported. Over 60 people were trapped in the cell as it started to fill up with thick smoke. The only door to get out was locked shut. And at least 40 people died. A couple of days later, Alicia found Avel on the streets. And I asked him, did you find your brother? And he started to cry and say, like, yes, he, he, I found my brother. He's dead. I saw his face, and it was like uh, a hopeless face, a feeling that doesn't, doesn't know what to do, that the vulnerability, because he doesn't even know where he could recover the body of his brother. Avel and his family had left everything behind in hopes of making a new life in the U.S. They, they led Venezuela because of the economic situation, you know. They sailed their house, they sailed their car. In that moment, they thought that the United States were open to welcome people from Venezuela, but then everything changed. At the start of the pandemic, the Trump administration issued an emergency order known as Title 42. What it did is allow the U.S. to block most migrants who arrived at the border on foot from seeking asylum and to quickly deport anyone who managed to cross on their own and turn themselves in. 
That policy is set to expire on May 11th. And in anticipation of that, many migrants have been heading to the border, hoping to get across. A state of emergency at the Texas border. The mayor of El Paso making the declaration late Saturday. He says more than 15,000 migrants have arrived in the last week. And now that number is... As a result, thousands of migrants from all over the world are stuck in Juarez, living in really rough, often dangerous conditions. The fire, according to refugee advocates, is the latest development in a longstanding crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border. This week on the show, we're going to look at the politics and policy decisions that led to this tragedy, what it's like to be a migrant in a border town right now, and what both the U.S. and Mexican governments could be doing to help. I'm Tamara Kandacker, and you're listening to Nothing is Foreign. Alicia Fernandez is a visual journalist and producer based in Juarez. Alicia, what are migrants in the city telling you about how they feel in the aftermath of this tragedy? They feel they feel afraid, you know. Um, the third day or, or maybe the second day, there was this big, big, big um, walking. You could see from all the border people like walking. Yeah, I read... Over a thousand people started walking towards the border, right? Yeah, exactly. So I talked with some of them and, well, literally one girl told me, we were burned alive. We're afraid. And well, before there were a lot of, a lot of situations, you know, kidnappings, lack of health services, lack of work to make ends mad, you know. So this fire was sort of the worst case scenario, but yeah, there were other things leading up to it that that people were exactly complaining about and worried about. A few hours ago, a few dozen protesters gathered steps away from the Paso del Norte bridge, and they told me they were equally calling on both the United States and the Mexican government to do more to address the ongoing migrant situation. The event started with a moment of silence that each victim... What about the residents of Juarez? What kind of impact has this incident had on people who live in the city? Well, unfortunately, we have, like, different points of view. Like, one week before this happened, there was these people, like, concentrating to the bridge, directly to the bridge, you know, where, where the people are crossing at the cars and... When people cross this line to go, people get crazy and mad. On Sunday, hundreds of migrants rushed and blocked the Paso del Norte bridge to cross to the U.S. They heard a rumor that U.S. authorities were going to finally allow them to cross. Fue un, una acción absolutamente irracional, sin sentido, que no más provoca daños. 
Juárez Mayor Cruz Pérez Cuellar says Sunday's action from migrants was something irrational and that doesn't make sense. Usually there's a lot of people helping here, people that doesn't have even so much things, but they share what they can, you know. So there's a lot of people, uh, months ago, uh, was a camping there with kids. All the time you could see people taking food to them at all hours. You know, you could see in the morning, early mm -hmm. in the morning, maybe people taking some burritos, some chocolates. But I don't know, like these uh, become to, this start to grow. A lot of people, more, a lot of people in the streets, a lot of people in, in, in any place. And much and, more, um, much more visible, right? Yeah, much more visible. There are still people helping, but there are other still people that feel like, why did they cut this access on the bridge? So kind of the opinions are divided by now. And I heard not too long before the fire, the mayor of Juarez had made some comments that were critical of the migrants. And he was saying, like, the city needs to crack down on, on the situation, right? And that was obviously reflecting the opinions of some people in the city. Yeah, exactly. He actually said that he had to take some measures because of this. It's because of economic effects, you know. He was reflecting the opinion of many people here involved in business. Yeah. So during the pandemic, Trump introduced this policy known as Title 42. And that policy is set to expire in May. And in anticipation of that, a lot of people have been heading towards the border, hoping to be able to seek asylum. What has this surge in migrants looked like on the ground? Well, uh, the situation right here is a real crisis. You know, you can see a lot of people sleeping on the streets, uh, in an abandoned buildings. Uh, I have talked with other migrants and one of them told me that, that he was living on, on a I don't know, four by four meters room with 28 guys inside, you know, so wow. they, they were sleeping there. The shelters are full. There's a lot of people stalking Juarez. In the last few years, a lot of non-governmental organizations have stepped in to support migrants on the ground, including the International Rescue Committee. They've been keeping track of how the number of migrants have been growing and growing. Rafael Velazquez is the organization's country director for Mexico. The increase is happening, I think, on two fronts. First of all, we have to recognize that there is an increase on asylum requests in Mexico. So Mexico in 2018 had about 18,000 uh, asylum requests. And in 2022, it had 118,000. You know, another way to look at it is that in the last two years, they received a quarter of a million applications for asylum in Mexico. So more people are seeing Mexico as an option to seek asylum. Mm -hmm. But the systems are not in place for such a massive growth and, and, and need. The other part is the increase on people transiting through Mexico to go to the U.S. While the U.S. puts in place border externalization policies, which basically push asylum seekers back into Mexico. Now, we said before that Mexico can be a place where people can seek asylum. 
and it can be a safe destination for some people, but for many, it can't. Mm -hmm. And what we also know is that it's not a safe place everywhere, and it definitely is not in many of the border areas where people are waiting to be able to apply for asylum and cross over. Where are these migrants coming from, and why wouldn't Mexico be a safe place for some of them to seek asylum? It's, it's, it's incredibly, I, if you ask me, when we opened our offices in Juarez back in 2019, it was when the caravans were uh, heavily in the, in, in, in the media mm -hmm. cycle. And uh, people were thinking of migration in Mexico and or through Mexico as an issue specific to the Northern Triangle. That is definitely not the case. Uh, we have a community center here in Ciudad de Mexico that is working with Ukrainians that are escaping the war, that is working with Afghanistans that came to Mexico following the fall of Kabul. Mm -hmm. We are working with people from West Africa in the south of the country, in Chiapas, in Tenosique, Palenque, everywhere we have a presence. Yes, we do see people from Central America who may be escaping food insecurity, who may be escaping, escaping violence, but we also see people who are escaping political oppression, in the south of the country, as well as in the north, or Haitians. So uh, it's it's incredibly diverse. And I don't think the international community has come to grasp and quite understands the depth and the uh, the impact that this migration crisis uh, is, is currently taking place in Mexico. My name is Ian Urbina. I've reported on some pretty mind-blowing stories, but nothing like what happens at sea. If they got within 800 meters, that is when we would fire warning shots. Murder, slavery, human trafficking, and staggering environmental crimes. Men have told me that they've been beaten with stingray tails, with chains. If you really want to understand crime, start where the law of the land ends. The Outlaw Ocean. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. There are migrants from all over the world and Ciudad Juarez, but a lot of the people who are there right now are from Venezuela. They're fleeing a political and economic crisis, and they arrived thinking that they'd be welcomed by the U.S. That's because earlier this year, the U.S. promised to give 24,000 Venezuelans a legal path to asylum. But those who didn't meet a strict list of criteria have been stuck at the border like a woman who spoke with Alicia named Loidemal Barrio. She's a mother of two years old, and she left Venezuela because she doesn't have enough money to make ends meet. She thought that there was an opportunity for them in the United States, so they arrived to Juarez by... They just mount the train and, and, and they have one month here and, and well, they... The family sells lollipops at the streets, trying to, to feed them. Sometimes we had to sleep in the street on cardboard. Sometimes we had not been able to eat or feed the children. Right now it's warmer. When we arrived, it was very cold, and we had to sleep in the street with a cold, and we were so hungry. Thankfully, there are many good people in Ciudad Juárez who have supported us a lot. She told me, you know, I'm not really sure when I go to the United States. I would like to go to Canada. And she said that 
what what Canadians would like to know about her is that she wants to work, she wants to learn the language, she wants to do many things, uh, and and she's just like trying to to find a better future for their family. Lloyd Amal was really hopeful, but the fire at the detention facility has been a turning point. Sí, tuvimos una tragedia el día lunes que hubo el incendio. Bueno, ese día. We had a tragedy on Monday when there was a fire. That day, we worked at the traffic light selling popsicles. That day, I had my two children with a fever. I was in the hospital and we did not work at the traffic light, which was when migration officials grabbed people because it had come out on the news that we couldn't work like that. We didn't know we had a relative. He's my husband's cousin. We didn't know he was there. He died in the tragedy. Falleció. En la tragedia de lo que pasó aquí en migración con 41 muertos. And what's her immigration status now? Like, what does she have to do to get to the U.S.? They are trying to apply in the application, but she hasn't had so much luck. Mm-hmm. And the application that you're talking about, it's it's this thing called CBP-1 that the U.S. has introduced recently, right? And that's where people have to download this app on their phone and use that to book an appointment with U.S. immigration? Yes. The application only opens three minutes, three minutes each day, you know? So you have to buy like gigabytes of internet for your cell phone. Some of them doesn't have cell phones. Nine in the morning, everybody, you see people on the streets like trying to to enter into the application three minutes. And that's only three minutes, you know? Uh, The most of the people couldn't have the opportunity to apply. And, and well, this Venezuela woman that I just spoke before, she has one month here. And she said that it's, it's difficult. It's, it's, it's difficult. She couldn't do, make an appointment. If she doesn't do it today, you have to try it tomorrow. And the next day, and the next day. So there are people that have been trying each day. And meanwhile, they're sort of living in limbo in Juarez where the conditions are chaotic and the system isn't equipped to support this many people. And the other thing that's important to understand here is that this isn't happening in a vacuum, right? There's a lot of organized crime along the border as well. And I'm wondering what the implications of that are and what kind of danger does that put migrants in? The complete border is controlled by the the cartel, you know. So when people trying to cross the United States, some of them try to hire coyotes. Some of them maybe they will took you to El Paso, but but some of them telling that our coyotes were kidnappers at first becoming their friends and then asking the information and then extorting, then then making extortion to their families in the United States. It's dangerous to be a migrant here in Juarez. DPS body cam video shows the moment troopers found over 20 migrants stowed away in this small, confined space. Human smuggling is on the rise in South Texas. 
DPS Sergeant Juan Maldonado said this stop in LaSalle County is not out of the ordinary. Uh, they usually get smuggled to a large city, which would be going towards either San Antonio, Houston, Dallas, the big metro cities. So let's just zoom out a little bit. I've heard a lot of immigration advocates say that this fire and the bottleneck that we're seeing along the border now are the result of policy decisions that were made before. What do you think led to this? Well, Mexico has became the wall of of United States. They put the National Guard at the borders. So it became more and more pressure to stop people crossing. Mexico is kind of trying to stop the migration in order to help the United States, you know? And there were more and more pressure on. They were doing these night rides, uh, taking migrants from hotels. And well, I think all this context led to this tragedy. You say Mexico has become a wall for the U.S. It's basically what you're saying is Mexico is helping the U.S. enforce its immigration policies by deploying more troops to control the borders and detaining migrants. So why has the Mexican government partnered with the U.S. in this way? We depend so much of the economy of United States, you know. If United States cough a flu, we have fever. And also this president, you know, hadn't gone to any international meeting. But he went to United States to talk with Trump. We can talk about baseball. We can talk about a lot of things. Everything without confrontation, because it's a political meeting. Critics of López Obrador say the Mexican president is making a mistake by sitting down with Trump, who many in Mexico regard as racist and anti-Mexican. A recent poll, however, found that while few Mexicans are fans of Trump, a majority favor López Obrador meeting with the U.S. president, with many hoping the trip will help improve a bad economy. Before he became president, Andrés Manuel López Obrador, also known as AMLO, used to rail against the abuses faced by migrants and urge Mexico to provide them with safe passage to the U.S., But that tone changed when he came to power and he was faced with pressure from Donald Trump. In 2018, when Trump threatened to hurt Mexico's economy if it didn't do more to stop the flow of migrants to the U.S., Mexico agreed to deploy thousands of its own National Guard troops to its southern and northern borders. It also ramped up raids set up more checkpoints, and agreed to basically serve as a waiting room for the U.S. There was hope that things would change when Joe Biden was elected because he promised a more humane approach towards migrants. But Rafael from the International Rescue Committee says things haven't gotten any better. I I see the situation getting worse, and that has to do with a uh, lack of a complete revision of how migration is managed by both countries. Um, I see that, unfortunately, asylum seekers are seen as uh, perhaps uh, pawns of a larger strategic game. And um, at the end of the day, the, the humane aspect of migration has not come back as I would have hoped to the debate of migration. 
So I understand people who work with migrants on the ground are bracing for a surge in May, given the plans to lift Title 42 on May 11th. Is there anything the Mexican government can do to prepare for that? If Title 42 is completely removed, there are ongoing conversations about bringing in an asylum ban that will basically not allow people to transit if they're going through what they would consider a a third safe country, which is incredibly subjective and going back to the conversation about whether is Mexico a safe country for people in transit? Mm -hmm. For some people it can be, for many people it can be, for many people at the border in Juarez, in Tijuana, in Matamoros, it's not. And and so can we prepare for that? I'll be very, very uh, candid with you. Um, We have seen budget cuts here since since I took over my position at least three times. Mm -hmm. So even 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 if there was greater coordination, even if we push for uh, better planning and strategic planning and cooperation, we're unable to respond. The demand is not meeting the supply at the end of the day. Yeah. And what about the U.S.? Is there anything the American government can do to alleviate the pressure on Mexico and NGOs like yours? Definitely. And I think that that's a big part of that. We... We have heard a lot in terms of budget allocations, but the reality is that that has not hit the ground yet. We have not seen a lot of those. I, I know of many increasing fundings for more like security related matters, perhaps. But when it comes to funding allocated through multilaterals, it's quite the opposite. It is. And, and we appreciate and understand that, as always, there are pressing humanitarian needs all over the world. Um, we have always uh, situations such as what happened in Ukraine, what is happening in Yemen, what is happening right now in Haiti. What is important to know and to, to I think, keep in perspective is not to lose sight of the fact that those crises don't have um, uh, ripple effects elsewhere in the world. And at the end of the day, Mexico is the figur- figurative and literal last mile for thousands and thousands of asylum seekers, whether they're coming from Haiti, whether they're coming from Guatemala, whether they're coming from other parts in South America. And again, as I mentioned before, we see people from Ukraine, we see people from Senegal, we see people. It Mexico is a key component of that picture. And I, I wish the US government would realize that and resource it because there is no turning back from it. There is no pretending that it's not there as an issue. It's been over a week since the deadly fire at the migrant detention facility in Juarez. What happened is now being investigated as a possible homicide. There are questions swirling as to why workers at the facility were seen on video not doing anything to let migrants out of the cell as the fire was spreading. So far, five people have been arrested. We're going to leave you today with a final word from Alicia who says this tragedy isn't going to stop people from heading to the border in hopes of a better life. People keep coming and coming and coming. There's always new people around, and people doesn't know what to do. The government is not waiting so much. This tragedy just happened. They have a lot of pressure, international pressure, to to solve what happened there. And I don't know, uh, the migrants are afraid. Are afraid of what could happen to, to them. But it will not stop people from coming. 
right, that's all for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Our producers are Joyta Shangupta and Vivian Luck. And our sound designer is Yvette Sin. Our senior producer is Elaine Chow. The executive producer of Nothing is Foreign is Nick McKay-Blokos. Nothing is Foreign is a co-production of CBC News and CBC Podcasts. Our theme music is by Joseph Shabison. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at CBC Podcasts. I'm Tamara Kandacker. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.